follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me, and so it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray and interpret what they say, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays and my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, yet I will sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in spirit, how can someone else who is now in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving? Since they do not know what you are saying, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words instruct than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be like adults. And the law is written with other tongues, and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, but not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or in unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So, um, in part, I was trying to decide whether or not to finish up this run in Corinthians and um, you know it does start with like if uh, you want to pursue or to follow the way of love you should uh, you know do a series of things that uh, force Paul into a a fairly explicit comparison between prophecy and speaking in tongues but you know uh, it kind of reading through it and working through it and deciding whether or not I wanted to preach about it, it 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 struck me that you know Trey had asked a question and Linda had asked a question that um, essentially forced us to consider if the object of love is the body of Christ, if the object of love is the church, how do we think about folks who are beyond the church? How do we think about our obligations in love to others? And, you know, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is oftentimes the thing that pops up to us in discussion is something that, uh, I don't know, it has on its mind next. So, if you, if you think about the arc that we've done around love, I guess we started with Jesus's use of the term love. And it, I mean, I know it's a way back, but if you remember, the basic point was that Jesus almost never talks about the idea of love without also talking about the idea of freedom. Remember that stuff about the relationship between love and the law and that, you know, part of the 
the, the reason why Jesus talks about love is not just to express or feel a feeling towards someone, but Jesus ultimately almost always connects talking about love with freeing someone from themselves and from the law so that they can be in relationship with him. So, you know, there's uh, that idea that is kind of woven through Jesus's talk about love in the Gospels. And then as we got to talking about love in the letters and specifically in, you know, in the Corinthians, the, uh, the, the, the idea of freedom is something like that we become a body together. I've talked about love as a solvent, you know, that it kind of dissolves the relevant distinctions between us. And in doing so, it, it frees us to become a body. It frees us to take up our place alongside others in the body of Christ and therefore frees us to uh, be in new relationships with one another. And I don't know, like the metaphor of the body to me is really interesting because it's not like, as we've classically thought about the relationship between love and law, you say something like, I don't know, you got to follow the law and then love just kind of blunts or softens the exercise of the law. So you should really hold to the law as the structuring principle, but just kind of be nice about it. The idea of a body is something so much bigger and to me so much more profound than that. The idea of a body is that one of the things that motivates us to sin is that we ultimately make an idol of ourselves and feel like it is our own intentions in the world that are important and not the intentions and the motivations and the direction that is set out for the body of Christ. And love, in a sense, frees us from our own uh, selfish motives by getting us to think differently about how we relate to one another. And so, you know, as uh, Linda had made the point, and, and I think when Hunter was here, Hunter had made the point that, uh, you know, you can talk about the relationship between a hand and a foot, and it seems kind of weird, but if you think about the relationship, say, between, I don't know, your heart and your lungs, it's awfully hard to say, boy, the heart would really be bummed out if the lungs got better at bringing in oxygen, because when we think about ourselves as being a body, we think about our vision of the world as being so intimately dependent on one another that when something good happens for someone else, it's a cause of joy for us. And when something bad happens to someone else, it's a cause of pain for us. And I don't know, that's the idea of the body of Christ. We're dissolved into being uh, members of this body. And that dissolution is not simply subtraction, but it like brings us together to be more fully and more holy who we are t- intended to be. Agape. So, one last sermon on this kind of Corinthians metaphor of the body and of agape and of being, I don't know, dissolved into a body. And Paul starts this kind of piece in chapter 14 by saying it's a way of kind of following through uh, what we should desire from the gifts of the Spirit. And it's asking us to think in deeper and more broad terms about what those desires ought to look like. And so Paul is basically, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, building out a vision of the mega or the meta gift, the idea that love, if it is to do anything, is to build the church. Love is to build the body and to grow the body and to do whatever you can to not only increase its health, but seek its flourishing. Paul tees it up this way in 14. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the spirit, especially prophecy. Now, follow the way is a rough translation, to me at least. Uh, Jesus uses the term the way a lot, and it would have been awfully interesting if Jesus, or if, uh, if the gospel used the term way here, but it doesn't use the term way, nor does it really use the term follow. The Greek term here is diokete, and it means 
to pursue something like a hunter, to relentlessly track it down, to eagerly desire. And then the other word here is zelute, to be zealous in pursuit of the mega gift of love. And it seems weird that Paul would say, look, all the gifts are equal and you should pursue them all in, in, in some form, but really, really, really pursue prophecy. That's the super important one. So, you know, the question is, why would Paul say that we should pursue prophecy as opposed to the other gifts? And I think it's because it has this unique characteristic that is built into it that really blows up the way that we think about the body of Christ and ultimately answers a question that both Trey and Linda pointed out. How do you think about your obligations beyond the body? So if we start with the idea that prophecy and speaking in tongues are different and we see how they fulfill the larger purpose of love, a different vision of body starts to come into view. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but speaks to God. I've mentioned before a lot of times when the um, Pauline letters use uh, different words for speak, and one of the words for speak means a little bit more like not quite um, communicating, but maybe babbling or chattering. And Paul uses that word here, laleo, when I babble or chatter, I do not speak to people, or I do not speak to people, but speak to God. And if you have doubts that Paul really intends the idea of speaking there to kind of have that pejorative sense of the term, like babbling or, I don't know, uh, not quite fully connecting, he says, indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Now, in the uh, church of my youth, uh, when I was a kid, they may not uh, usually framed the conversation over the spiritual gifts this way, but uh, if res church folk know, uh, it is strange to say that someone can utter mysteries by the Spirit. Why? What is a mystery? Anybody remember the root for it? Shut your mouth. Remember, mystery and muo meant the things that we had to be silent over, the things that we couldn't say. So Paul's talking about this strange paradox where someone can utter mysteries by the Spirit. Mysteries are supposed to be things that, I don't know, you're literally not able to say. And the text here says, literally, no one kind of understands what you're talking about when you speak in tongues. But then look at verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, I don't think that what Paul's talking about here is really just comprehensibility. He's not really talking about, you know, the difference in understanding between prophecy and tongues. He's talking about motive. What is the difference in motive here? Well, the difference in motive is that when someone speaks in tongues, they seek to edify themselves. But when someone speaks a prophecy, they seek to edify the church. And anybody remember the uh, roots of edifice? It mean, or edify, it means to build up an edifice. It's a way that we kind of point towards the Greek term that was a term about building up a house to make a home for or to make a body for the church. The one that prophesies builds up or edifies God's house, the church. And I, surpri- I'm, I, I suppose you won't be surprised to hear that the word for greater here, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, is not just 
a kind of ordinal ranking. Prophecy is sweet because it is the mega or meta gift here. It utters mysteries and things unknown, but instead of connecting me, an individual, more closely with God, like speaking in tongues does, prophecy is, I don't know, meta edification. It aims at building up and incorporating people into the body of the church. So he says in verse 6, Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And as you start to kind of read through the argument that Paul's working out here, it's clear that speaking in tongues is something that aims at something like a spiritualized uh, or personalized spirituality that connects me with God individually, but that prophecy connects all of us together, both as a body and with God. And that's the measure of what makes prophecy so much more important than tongues. It's not just that it's understandable in the abstract, is that it aims to build out and expand the scope of the church. Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's distinction in the notes? If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking into the air. That first sentence literally says, even in the case of things that do not have a mind but make sounds, no one can hear music unless there's some intention for meaning, for communicating something, for having variation between the notes that signals an emotion or an impression. The idea here, I think, is that Prophecy is superior because not just it's intelligible to other people, but it aims at the edification of other people, as opposed to speaking in tongues, which aims at an edification that is about me and about my relationship with God, as opposed to one that ties the church together more closely. And thus, in a call back to the clanging symbol, speaking in tongues is not as great as prophecy. Prophecy is the meta gift, not only because we can understand what someone's saying when they speak a prophetic declaration, but because its goal is to build and make a common church. Do you all remember that thing about koinonia? Love brought us into common in the exact same way that uh, everyone starting to speak the same language in Greece did, that love is about building a church in a way that minimizes distinctions between us and between others, and that creates a groundwork where we can really and truly be fellow citizens and fellow heirs. And if you look at verses 10 through 12, that idea of koinonia is built so beautifully here, although the translation doesn't really fully get at it. Verse 10, undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you're eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try and excel in those that edify the church. Now, think about that comparison to Koine that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It was about speaking a common language. It's about making a common world. It's about, you know, when you have that kind of intimacy and vocabulary that you can share with someone that you can, you know, talk about things in very compact and mutually understood terms and you have inside jokes and you have all these different ways that you've made a world together and that speaking a common language binds you together with someone. And in fact, love is that kind of, I don't know, that's why it's a solvent. It binds us all together and gives us a common feeling, a common set of practices. It puts us alongside and, and with one another and alongside and with Christ. That's what it means to be in common. But the problem is when you make something common, when you identify the conditions that bring people together, you almost always implicitly do what? 
mark out some people that don't belong, that aren't members of the group, that aren't in there. And this is exactly that question about the character of the body. If the point of Christian love and the superiority of prophecy is rooted in the idea that it's understandable and it builds up the body, what does that tell us about love for those who are outside the body? And it's a tough question until you realize the uh, word for foreigner here. The word for foreigner here doesn't just mean someone from beyond the boundaries of the border that you live in. And I think I've told this story before, and you may remember it from a while back, but you know, when the Greeks established a common language and a common identity, they also invented a new word for everybody who was outside of Greece. Anybody remember? They were the people whose language sounded like they were saying bar, 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 bar. And so the Greeks called the people just beyond their borders who didn't speak the language barbarians. And the point for the Greeks was, if you invited someone in to learn Greek, to understand the characteristics of Greek culture, to see what it was getting at, that the barbaroi, the barbarian, is of course kind of scary and kind of a foreigner, but it also, in a weird way, is just someone who doesn't quite speak Greek yet. And the Greek experience was to invite everybody into a common language and a common world and a common understanding. And the word word that Paul uses here for foreigner, like I said, is, is barbarian. And he's saying something like, look, one of the reasons why prophecy is the superior gift is because it aims at people who aren't yet included in our community, who don't yet speak our language, but for whom we would like to invite into our common understanding of the world. And so the reason why the idea that prophecy is superior kind of blows up a bunch of the stuff about how we think about the body is this, the Trey question, the Linda question, the Dan question, all the folks that have kind of pointed at some version of this. If the point of dissolving into the body of Christ is that the folks in this room or already in the church become closer, then it does not embody the way or the vision of love that does something that tears down walls and that makes us more connected to other people and then puts us closer to every person who is made in the image of God. But if the vision of love here is one that says the mark of and reason for prophecy, the mark of and reason for, I don't know, the subsections in the NIV, I thought were kind of funny. They're like intelligibility in worship and order in worship, right? And so we read these passages and you're like, oh, this is about us all acting nice when we're inside here and not running around and screaming and maybe uh, worship needs to be recognizable to someone else. But I think Paul's saying something much deeper and much more profound here. He's saying that if you understand love is a way and its character is to build, then that means that it points towards every person who does not yet understand the character of Jesus Christ or does not yet integrate it into our community who is not yet in common with us. The point then of love as a solvent that makes us into a body is not just to define the boundaries of that body and to create an intimate little paradise inside the church. The point of love and the gifts and all these things Paul is saying is that it ought to build out, invite others to be in common with us. And thus, this is this thing that blew me away when I started reading through the end of it. I mean, look at, look at verse 13. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that there is an interpretation. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. And then six, jump down to 16. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying? This text, when you break it out, is so beautiful. 
at getting at the idea that we want to take barbarians and we want to make them common with us, that the goal of Christian love is to edify or build the body by bringing new people in. And it literally gives us instructions on how to think about people outside the church. It's the most beautiful, beautiful little ending to the argument. The text literally says something like, how can someone who is in, and it doesn't say in the position of an inquirer, the word in Greek there is, how can someone who is in the place of the uninstructed say that what we are saying is true? And it's quick and it's subtle, but I think it's huge because the way it frames people outside the church is not to say there are properly instructed Christians and then there are non-instructed Christians. The only people, there are only people according to this verse that are, the Greek literally says, filling the place of the uninstructed, as if they just kind of sit in it for a little bit. And the kicker for prophecy is that prophecy is not about the people in this room. It's not about us individually. It's about inviting people who do not yet speak that common language to come and participate in love. And it blew me away. The Greek there doesn't say the outsiders or the uninformed. It literally says people who are put in the position, or you could translate it as playing the role or filling the place of the uninstructed or the outsider. Think about what that means. Our spiritual practice is animated by love. It ought to be animated by love. And if it is animated by love, it's not about us. It's not even about the existing body of Christ. Its goal in love is to build and fill the church with people who are identified by Scripture as only temporarily playing the role of the outside. As a friend you haven't met is the way we would have said it in Utah. But the point and the choice is clear that our vision of love isn't about defining the boundaries of our body and then saying who does or isn't included. Instead, the vision of love here says whenever we worship, whenever we speak, whenever we practice together, we should do it in a way that other people can understand and find intelligible because those people are not outsiders, are barbarians permanently. They are only people who find themselves in the place of being uninstructed. And the way of love is to invite everyone in and to presume that everyone belongs in the body, to presume that every person ought to be tied to us, to presume that there is no boundary between the church and outside the church, but instead to be the hands and the face and the feet of Jesus Christ to everyone. And to see each person, regardless of where you locate them theologically, as a person for whom Christ dies, as a person to whom love is extended. And so we treat everyone in our vision of love as if they are included in and as if they are the subject of the sacrifice of the body of Christ. I think it's beautiful. And if you, I don't know, if you think that's a stretch, the literal translation of verse 17, which our text has, you're giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. It's way too precise. It's that it doesn't, when it says no one is, is edified, the literal translation is those who are different than you are not built up or invited into the house. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, he says in 18. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct than 10,000 words in a tongue. Tongues are great and intelligibility is important, but... Paul's whole point here is that the thrust and importance of the gifts is that it ought to bring other people into that common language. And so when we think about worship and our practices of worship, we should do so in a way that presumes that every person is only temporarily in the place of or playing the role of the, under, uh, of the uninstructed and is invited into and asked to be a potential object of dissolution into our body. 
Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children, Paul says. In regard to evil, be infants, and your thinking be like an adult's. If an unbeliever or inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying and they are convicted of sin, they are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare and so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really among you. The point of the superiority of prophecy is that it is open to folks who do not speak our language. We learned last week that childish thinking is partial thinking. That's the kind of thinking that sees the gift as yours. It sees the glory that you get from the gift is disconnected from the project of love. Adults think differently, like we said last week, whether it is an individual adult or a congregation, the point of maturity here is to see every and each and every other person is already included in and invited into the body of Christ, regardless of a profession of faith. And that is how we ought to love them, at least when it comes to loving them agapically. And just to ice the point, when Paul says in 24, If an unbeliever or inquirer comes while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their heart are laid bare, they will fall down worshiping God. The word of love that is common, koine, opens each person to the koinonia, a world that is made common and founded in love. And it is the word that dissolves the barriers that contain the secrets of each person's heart and exposes us to one another that transverses any difference between insiders and outsiders. And gosh, the most beautiful part of this maybe is that the word judgment brought under judgment by all is not quite right. The Greek word there, anacrino, also means that they are able to be brought under being chosen by all. And that's quite a difference from saying being judged by all, but instead that each one is offered the choice to enter into meaningful communion with the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know. I can't, I don't think we can do enough the idea that each person is when it comes to the perspective of agape, presumptively a part of the body of Christ. And that's why it's better to prophesy than to speak in tongues, not just because we can understand it, not just because it makes it accessible to us, but because it is an extension of, what do you want to call it, the meta or the mega gift of love, so that the body might be built up so that every person who is made in the image of God might find a home in it. Amen.